0: We're continuing our series from Mark. We're up to Mark chapter 2. And uh, as I prepared this sermon, I got very, very excited. I, I reckon this is probably going to be my best sermon for the year. So um, I, I think I should send a copy to each person who's not here because of the rain. You mean we've got nothing better to look forward to? Nothing better to look forward to. <laughs> so today we're actually going to look at the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be a disciple? And uh, there's a lot of opinions. And sadly, some of them um, will go down side tangents that are not core value what Scripture is about. So we're going to look at what disciples are. Now, the interesting is that Jesus is not the only people to have disciples. So we have uh, John the Baptist and the Pharisees with disciples. So John the Baptist in Matthew 11 said that John sent word to his disciples. There was a group of people that he gathered around him for what he did. Now, it's interesting with the Pharisees. Uh, there in Matthew 22, it says the Pharisees sent their disciples to Jesus. And so disciples was quite a common thing to have. But now in the Bible, the disciples are principally who are the followers of Jesus and specifically the Apostles, the 12 Apostles. Now, disciples are mentioned a lot in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the four Gospels. They are partly and rarely mentioned in the book of Acts and never mentioned in the letters. And you say, well, why is that? So when you get to uh, the book of Acts, the word disciple has a new word. So disciple could be anyone who is a follower of any, any religious belief. But if you were a follower of Jesus, you were called a Christian. So the word Christian is, I am a committed follower of the Lord Jesus. I've accepted him as my Lord and Savior. I hunger to serve him day by day. And so being a Christian is a far more intimate, far more accurate term for a disciple of Christ. And uh, there's a number of things I want to draw your attention to that were quite distinctive. That Jesus' disciples were not like the disciples of John the Baptist or the disciples of the Pharisees. Now, the very first thing is, how did the disciple become a disciple? So in Matthew 4, 19, he said, uh, Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Or in John chapter 1, he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, it's interesting. Jesus said, follow me, not follow God. Or if you were a Pharisee, you would have said, come and follow the law with me. You and I will discover the law. Or if you were a follower of John the Baptist, come and Find out about my teachings as John the Baptist as we find out to repent for God. But Jesus' disciples had a very clear intimacy of saying, you will be following me, that I will be your living textbook in front of you. Now, if you go through the Gospels, Jesus, your words, follow me, are found on Jesus' lips 20 different times. Now, sadly, some wanted to be followers of Jesus, but on their own terms. There's a cryptic verse in Matthew 8, verse 21. Another disciple came up to Jesus and said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. So when Jesus said, come follow me, he says, look, I'd love to follow you, but I've got to bury dad first. Now, you kind of feel sorry for the guy. You think, oh my gosh, the guy's dad's just died. You know, funeral's on Wednesday. How bad is that? But the reality is his dad was healthy, fit as a fiddle. And the thought was saying, oh, I've got to bury dad. He might die in five, 10, 15, 20 years. When dad dies, I'll come looking out for you. And so it was, a, it was kind of like a compromised way of um, not being honest about things. So the first thing is, follow me. And when he cast them to follow him, he actually said to them that they should leave everything behind. So in Matthew 4, immediately, and it's funny, if you go through Mark's gospel especially, the word immediately appears every single page. It's like this sense of urgency. So here in Matthew 4, immediately they left their nets and they followed Jesus. Now James and John mending their nets and, they, and uh, he called them. And immediately they left the boat, left their father and followed him. There's a sense that they left their whole livelihood. They left their house. Everything was just left behind. And when Jesus talks about this in Matthew 16, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, we don't take up our cross today. Our idea of taking a cross is wearing one around our neck. But for the early church, to take up the cross meant for many of them, they would die. As we uh, said that uh, Afghan is the second country on the uh, open doors watch list. To become a Christian in Afghanistan means death. I love my Afghani uh, students at school. They were quite delightful. And uh, we were chatting about what it would be like if I went to Afghanistan. What would happen? And they said, oh, well, you're a Christian. they will just kill you. So what do you mean? He says, yeah, on day one they just just kill you straight away, and they said no one bad deny it, no one will feel guilt, no one feel remorse. They just know they're doing the right thing by killing you, and that is what some Christians face. As Jesus says, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whereas well, Jesus says in Luke chapter fourteen verse twenty six, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, it's not saying go and hate everybody. It's saying that your love for Jesus should so overwhelm your love of the world. Then in verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In verse 33, so therefore, anyone who, any one of you who does not renounce all that he cannot be, to can be my disciple. So there's a real strong sense that Jesus is saying, when you become my disciple, I am the centre of your attention. Now it's interesting when we look at how Jesus uh, viewed his family. So there in Matthew chapter 12, while I was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother, his brother, stood outside asking to speak to him. Now why are they outside? Why didn't they just come straight at him? Because they were embarrassed by Jesus. Jesus, they thought was a, a fool and a nut. But Jesus responded to uh, this response, to saying, oh, go and see your family. He says, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hands towards his disciples and said, "You are my mother and you are my brothers." Now for me, as the past, I can say, "You are my family." It's the same intimacy that we have there. In verse fifty 50,Who ever doesn't the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister and my mother." So Jesus saw, being a disciple, is family intimacy that you are Jesus' brother. You are the son or daughter of God. And the fourth thing that's interesting about disciples is what the disciples learnt is not the same as the crowd. And I love when people sit and have massive discussions about the parables. The reality is, Jesus would tell a parable and nearly everybody in the audience would say, I've got no idea what he's talking about. And then they'd have massive discussions as they tried to guess what he talked about. So we find in Matthew 16, Jesus strictly charged his disciples to tell no one he was the Christ. So they had very intimate knowledge. When he said, I'm the Christ, they knew and nobody else did. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests and scribes to be killed and on the third day to be raised again. This was intimate knowledge the disciples had. And so we find in Mark chapter 4, it says... Jesus did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. So if you were disciples, uh, the normal person did parables 101, you got to do advanced parable classes where he said, this is what I mean by these things. And they regularly weren't sure until he told them. So being a disciple regularly involved a sense of intimacy, of extra knowledge. So what does it mean to be a disciple? If you go to Mark's gospel, there's two sections. Mark 1 to 8 is the whole journey where they discover he's the Christ. And then 9 to 16 is the Christ will die. So there's two things Mark says. Jesus is the Christ and the Christ will die. So at the end of Mark 8, what does it say? On his way, he said to his disciples, Who do people think that I am? And some of them said, oh, some think you're John the Baptist. Others think that you're Elijah. Others think you're just one of the prophets. He waited and paused for a second. And then he asked them, who do you think I am? And, Peter, and Peter would very regularly, impulsively answer, sometimes right, sometimes wrong. But Peter says, you are the Christ. And what does Jesus do? He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. He said you have grasped that I am the Christ and from his point of view I will now teach you that I must suffer but don't tell anyone why because people have distorted and false views of what that really means. After I have died upon the cross then you can tell people because then they will have a clear message. And what was the clear message they to have? In Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So being a disciple is a solid commitment of putting Jesus first in your life. And what is the, uh, what's the mark of a Christian? And what is the mark of our church? In John 13, By this all people will know that you are my disciples. So how do they know we're disciples? Because of our love for one another. Now one of the interesting highlights about the early church is, that a whole lot of people believed, the early church believed in incest. And you kind of think, well, how did they get that? Because you go to church and people say, oh, this is my brother, oh, this is like my mother, this is my, like you treated everybody in church as your family, and people say, but you've just described this woman as your sister. I thought she was your wife. But there's a sense of family relationships that they had from the word go. And uh, when plagues came upon the city, the Christians would go out and bury those who died of the plague. Those who were sick, they'd bring them into their houses and they would tend them. And it was such a distinctive difference to the rest of the world. Did you did see at the moment in China. Guess what the churches are doing? They're going out to the streets and giving away free face masks because the people are so paranoid about what's happening. And the church is saying, there's a problem here in our country We need to be the answer. That's the love that the church had. Now, it's interesting, being a disciple, being a Christian, is not just about sitting in church and entertaining yourself. It's actually about being actively participating in the ministry life of the church. Now, for some people, it may mean Bible reading or doing the projector or teaching or doing Sunday school classes or doing... Uh, SRE in schools. There's, there's active things like that. But being a minister is also you go down to the coffee shop and you talk to the person who sells you the coffee. You talk to your neighbour. You share your faith in how you live. It's part of your conversation. So we find uh, in Matthew, when the disciples, now they're quite special as the apostles, but he says he called the twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean uh, spirits to cast them out to heal every disease and every affliction. In other words, What I've been doing, do what I do. Just copy me. Preach and heal. And so we find in John 15, By this my Father is glorified, and you will bear much fruit, so prove that you are my disciples. Our our discipleship is seen by us living the Christian life. Now, what was the final uh, message that Jesus gave to his disciples? Now, these words are great, but they've been regularly twisted. So Matthew 28, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And they were very aware that Jesus was God's Son in the flesh in front of them. So what's he say? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And in the past, uh, people would come to church, especially missionary speakers. They said, look what the Bible says, go, everybody go. And oddly enough, uh, in the passage, when it says go, it says another way of saying it would be wherever you are, make disciples. And so for years, churches would, would flog to death the word go, but that was never the purpose of the passage. The purpose of the passage is make disciples. And then people get all excited so saying, let's do discipleship-making programs. And uh, it's the next couple of verses will tell you what discipleship-making programs will look like. So you baptize people in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's clear. Now, as you start them in the journey, uh, whenever I um, join a, uh, a rugby league club or something like that, the first thing they do is give me a little card that says I'm a member. Your baptism is the membership card to being part of the body of Christ. So it's just the entry point. So it's a, a response to the gospel, not a proof of the gospel. But it's verse 20 where we start to work out what discipleship is. So it says there, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'll be with you to the end of the age. So if you... Read your Bible regularly during the week. You are discipling yourself. You are Christianizing yourself. If you go to Bible study, you are discipling yourself. You are Christianizing yourself. If you sit and listen to sermons in church, you are Christianizing yourself. You are discipling yourself. So, how are we to be disciples? We learn from the scriptures, we read Christian books, we um, take God's word to heart. Now, in the passage, we see that uh, Jesus calls a man called Levi, who was a tax collector. So then in verse 4, and Jesus saw these Levi, he says to him those classic words, "Follow me." And what does he do? He rises up and just follows him. Now, tax collectors like Matthew were absolutely despised by Jews, and you're kind of thinking, Jesus, you're a religious leader. What are you doing talking to a tax collector? Why would you even want one of these guys to be in your crew? Like they're the worst guy to have because the tax collector was a, was a symbol of the subjugation of the Roman government. And if you were a tax collector, you were considered a, a left-wing, like a militant collaborator, uh, and that your fellow Jews would have regarded you as a traitor. And you're thinking, Jesus, who would pick a traitor to be a follower? And the, the tax collectors are noted because they would hang out with the Gentile dogs. Because if you were Jewish, you were very racist against all other nationalities and the Gentiles were treated as nothing. And you were seen as a tax collector by your very essence. You must be a dishonest person. Why? Because if you were a tax collector, you'd have nothing wrong with you shaking down your, uh, your brother uh, Jews and exhorting them for every cent you could get. And unfortunately for the Jews, the tax collectors had the force of all the Roman soldiers. So if you give a tax collector a hard time, he'd call the Roman soldiers over and they would settle the problem for you. So if you were a tax collector, the Jews would uh, be derogatory. They'd use terms like sinners. Now, some of the rabbinical writers went so far as to say, which is the rabbis, that tax collectors were no better than murderers or robbers. So when a person who was Jewish became a tax collector, he was instantly an outcast from his society. He was disqualified from being a judge. He was not allowed to be a witness in a court session. He was excommunicated from the synagogue. So if you were coming into our church and said, oh, I'm a tax collector now, we would just kick you out of the church straight away. Yet, Jesus chose Matthew. Now, it's interesting, we must remember that if you were a rabbi and you called disciples, you called them to be disciples who would bind themselves to the law. But Jesus calls his disciples to bind themselves to him. It's Jesus, not human performance. It's not mosaic rules as a way of salvation now. Repentance is not turning back to mosaic law and turning from sin. But becoming a Christian was turning your back on sin and going towards Jesus. Salvation is not found in a creed, not found in your performance, not found in a code, not found in laws. It is found in the living Christ as your Lord and Savior. So I started my sermon uh, today with the words, What is a disciple? I'm going to ask those questions again. What is a disciple? And it's interesting, in the New Testament, being a disciple, the, the New Testament really focuses on teaching being equal to discipleship. And what I've done is I've snippet probably about 20 little phrases from the New Testament when it uses the term preaching and teaching. So here, here are some of the snippets. Preach, teach, proclaim. Rightly discern the word rightly. Exhort people. Rightly handling the word of truth. Preach to save those who believe. For the, uh, we preach for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Preaching is about interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. There's a sense that the purpose of a sermon, the purpose of Christian teaching, is for believers to grow. Now it's interesting, there are different philosophies of how you can face preaching. I went to a really fantastic preaching conference this week and the the man, the lovely Korean guy from America, uh, was a very passionate and great uh, Bible teacher. But he reminded me that the purpose of the sermon is for you to understand God's Word at the end of the sermon. And there's a whole lot of other things that people do. I have a friend of mine who struggles at his church. Um, it's like reading the Sydney Morning Herald. They could do a sermon on climate change or on racism or on uh, helping children or whatever. The sermons could be all over the place. And his church perceives itself as being great because it's such a contemporary church. And he struggles because he said all they do is leave out Jesus. And um, sometimes he'll go to the minister afterwards or the preacher and say... Um, I was really interested with what you're saying. Are there anywhere in the Bible that backs up what you said? And it's had some people get very upset with him and offended how, how dare you expect me to find passages in the Bible that would teach what I taught you just then? But for me as a, as a preacher, I need to teach you scriptures. And that's what we get very, very strongly from the New Testament. What's it say? Preach the word, reprove, rebuke and extort. Well, Paul says, For I have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We preach Christ crucified. What happens when this happens? You receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And when you've got the power of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, what was going to happen? You would be my witnesses. Uh, Words like testimony, herald of salvation. You will speak Jesus to people. So what do we to do? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So our focus always needs to be on Jesus as our Lord and Jesus as our Savior. Which leads us to our third question for today. What should the purpose of believers be? And what's more, I've just done a whole lot of snippets of different passages of the Bible. And as I started working through it, I thought I've missed out the most important one. The most important one I should have first, and it wasn't on my initial list. So, what's the first thing we should do as Christians? We should love the Lord our God with all our strength, with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. And the second commandment is like it to love our neighbour as ourselves. So, our highest priority love God, love your neighbour. Then there's a whole of secondary verses that are linked to that. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. He elsewhere says, for we proclaim it, not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as servants for Christ's sake. Why is that verse in there? Because that's his replacement phrase for being a disciple. So you say, well, what does Paul say for being a disciple? The disciple is someone who says, Jesus as Lord, we ourselves as servants for Christ's sake. And what does he see as the role of the church? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He goes and says, We proclaim, warning everyone to teach everyone with all wisdom, that we represent everyone mature in Christ. Jesus needs behind every conversation we have. Now the apostles did not get groups of men to follow them, so you don't say, Oh, they're the the disciples of Peter, they're the disciples of Paul. What did they do? Their idea of discipleship was in mass groups normally, doing Bible teaching in solid instruction to people. Now, it's interesting, when we talk about discipleship, discipleship is not what you do as an individual, it's what we do as a church together. As they're changed in lives, we need to take Jesus at His word. So if you want to be a true disciple of Jesus, what are the signs of that? You read your Bible often. You talk to God in prayer often, and you hunger to be holy, and you talk to people about Jesus out of your normal conversations. The question we need to ask ourselves is if that is what we're to do, what changes should I make in my lifestyle? I remember uh, working with a minister, and I knew that between 9 and 10 every morning, he prayed. He'd do a whole lot of things in the morning. He'd get to the church office at 9 o'clock, he'd shut the door. And for the next hour or so, he would just pray for the members of the congregation. There's a thought from his point of view. I will start each day with prayer for the people that God wants me to pastor. Have you picked a time in the day when you pray? Have you picked a time in the day when you read the Bible? Have you picked a Bible reading plan for yourself? Are there people that you pray for often that you want to share the gospel with? I can guarantee if you start praying for George to share the gospel, at some point when you meet with George, you just start sharing the gospel because it's already on your mind. And this is what discipleship is about. It's not the exotic, it's just very homegrown, very simple. Be people of God's word, people of prayer, people with passion for Jesus. Let's just finish with prayer. Father God, may your word excite us. Father, teach us to be faithful in our reading of the Scriptures. May we hunger to do your will. Father, lead us, guide us, inspire us and renew us for you. Amen. We start our brand new series and uh, this will take us through to Easter, And we're going through Mark's Gospel. We went through Mark's Gospel a couple of years ago. And so these are the passages that we didn't preach on the last time. So it's here in uh, Mark's Gospel... Uh, many people believe it was the first gospel that was out of the, the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. So some people debate uh, about this, but Mark clearly looks like it was the first one. And the very first words of Mark's gospel tell us why he's writing his gospel. They're in Mark 1 verse 1. He says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's unpack that. He says it's about Jesus. And who is Jesus? He's the Christ. And he's also the Son of God. So Christ is a term you'd use with the Jews to say God, uh, God's special anointed one has come. And Son of God is a term you'd use with the Gentiles saying that Jesus was God's unique one and only Son. And of course, gospel uh, is going to be unpacked as we get through the first uh, chapter. So there in chapter 1, verse 15 and 14, it says, Now after John was arrested, as in John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And then in verse 15, it tells us what is the gospel. He says the time is fulfilled. In other words, his arriving in Israel was the start of a brand new event in time and space. And it has three aspects to it. The first he says is this, the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, the kingdom of God is near. So that's the first thing is about the kingdom of God. And we'll look at what that means in a moment. The second part of the gospel is that you need to repent. You need to confess to God that you are sorry for the sins you have done. And the third is you need to believe in the gospel. And so somehow the word gospel and the word kingdom of God are intertwined in the gospels. So what does kingdom of God actually mean? Now it's mentioned 126 times in the gospels, but hardly ever in the New Testament letters. Now the word kingdom in the Bible means God's reign or God's rule or God is in control. That God governs all things. And back in Psalm 103, it says this, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. As a good Presbyterian, one of the things we really talk about God is that He's the sovereign Lord. Now, other words, the title of uh, uh, Extreme Majesty Now since God's purpose for the world is to save people for himself, he needs to renew the world for its people. So his kingly rule implies that he wants to save us and redeem us and that is the core purpose of his kingdom happening. So that when Jesus dies to save sinners who repent, where do we see God's reign? First of all, we see God's reign in the heart of believers. So every believer has a relationship with God And their aim is to fight Satan, sin, and death. The second way we see the kingdom of God is as we meet together as believers in the church, the body of Christ, we are gathering as citizens of a new kingdom, not dominated by the views of the world, but dominated by the views of Christ. That's why the church so often clashes with society. Society says, This is our value. And we'll say, but this is our value. Now it's interesting, things like humility, we take humility now as the norm. Back when the New Testament was written, and they talked about humility, people thought that humility was a sign of weakness, not a sign of strength. Yet you and I as Christians say, but humility is what we should be. We should be humble. That is a sign of strength. There's an exact turnaround from how society saw things. If we think of things like marriage, we see the sacredness of a husband and wife and children. That unit is sacred. That is a modern Christian view. Lots of cultures, lots of societies throughout the whole of history have regularly belittled and devalued the role of the family. And where is the kingdom of God seen in the third space? It's seen in the heart of believers. It's seen in the church meeting. It is seen the day that Jesus comes back to rule the earth and then His kingdom will be proclaimed fully. So there we'll have a new heaven and a new earth. Now the Gospel shows that the kingdom of God is both present and in the future. It is now but to be fulfilled. We're nearly there but not quite. You can hear the future dimension when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, or your kingdom come. We are praying daily in the Lord's Prayer for Jesus to bring his kingdom about. And we should pray that every day. Now bring the kingdom, Lord. He's not here the way we want it to be. Bring your kingdom, bring your rule, fully in the lives of believers first, and then ultimately in the world. Therefore Jesus can say the kingdom is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It would be easy for Jesus followers to think that they could make him an earthly king. And at different times as you go through the Gospels, you see they did try and make him into an earthly king. They wanted him to make his kingdom happen in an earthly way. And Jesus is saying, No, my kingdom is far bigger, far more significant than the physical realm around you. Jesus knew that his death upon the cross would open the door to heaven and his kingdom would reign. This is why the kingdom of God in the Gospels is fulfilled in the rest of the New Testament, who don't use the term kingdom, but talk about Jesus is Lord. So Jesus being our Lord, and the kingdom and the gospel are all intertwined terms. Now as we come today to this uh, leprosy and the healing of a leper, it's interesting the New Testament has three words it uses to describe miracles. The first is it says it's a power, which means mighty deed that God is doing. Secondly, it is a sign which refers to a miracle that has figurative represents something else. Such as this healing represents the work of the kingdom of God. There's a symbolism. The third word they use is wonder. So you have power, signs and wonder. And wonder indicates that something extraordinary is about to happen. Now sometimes Jesus calls on His Father in performing miracles. At other times He'll do His miracles in His own authority. What's more, it just gives us the subtle implications of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity. So when we come to the Gospels, we find that there are 37 miracles that occur. Now some of the uh, miracles will occur in more than one Gospel, so their stories are repeated, but there's 37 of them. Of the 37, 11 are creation miracles. Jesus walks on water. Jesus calms a storm. On four occasions, Jesus will take demons or drive demons out of people. And four times he'll get people who are dead and bring them to life again. But the most significant area of his miracles is healings. There are 20 different times that he performs healings. Now sometimes it's described that healings are done in general to the community. Other times it's very specific and Jesus heals one person. So healings could be withered hands, could be blind who could see, disabled who could walk, the invalid, the paralytic, or deaf could once more hear. Now in Mark 1 we have this story. Now just before it says this, Immediately Jesus left the synagogue in the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So he's there with four disciples. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And so we have the uh, implications there's 12 apostles. One of the apostles at least had a uh, wife and therefore a mother-in-law. And uh, so immediately Jesus uh, was told about her. He came and took her by the hand, lifted her up and the fever left her like that. And typical of any good mother or mother-in-law, what does she do? She starts serving her food. You know, Oh, you poor boys, you look so hungry, I have to feed you. And so she does what is normal. So what's the response to Jesus curing the mother-in-law? Very crisp, quickly, people start whispering around the village. So it says in verse 32, That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew who He was. And so we see right at this very beginning, as Jesus starts His ministry, His ministry is very strong focused saying, I want to preach the kingdom of God. I want to call people to repentance. But because of His love and compassion on those who are struggling, people just don't hear the message only. They say, oh, but I've got a sick relative. I've got to bring them straight away. So now let's turn to the leper. Why is this leper and why is leprosy so significant? Now the term leprosy, it could be lepers, or leprosy or leprous, it occurs 68 times in the Bible, 55 times in the Old Testament, 13 times in the New. So what is leprosy? Now it wasn't until 1873 that it was given a specific typo called Henson's disease. It was given that in 1873 when Gerard Henson described the leprous uh, basilius. It was only at this point did leprosy finally have a definition for what was happening. Now, for many separate uh, centuries, leprosy was considered a curse of God and was often associated with sin. The earliest record we've been able to find of leprosy is about 600 BC. So it's a disease that has been part of uh, most countries in the uh, area of uh, Bible lands for centuries. But what's the trouble with leprosy? It did not kill you. But it did last forever and your body would slowly, exhaustively waste away to nothing. You would linger there with your body deforming and your tissues degenerating. Many have thought that leprosy was a skin disease. In reality, it's actually a nerve disease would be a better classification. Now, the Bible uses the term leprosy. But it covers not just leprosy as in what we use today, but any of those major skin diseases. So it covers a far broader uh, uh, spectrum that even includes things like mould and mildew. Now in the Old Testament, God said that when there were lepers among the people of Israel, they should be carefully quarantined and examined. We see that in Leviticus 13 and 14. So what did that mean? If you were a leper, you had to dress like people who were mourning for the dead. So the very clothes you wore were that of a funeral because people considered that you were the living dead. How devastating would it be if you caught leprosy? As you walked through the streets, you had to yell out as people came near you, unclean, unclean, unclean. And those words be on your lips every moment of the day. A rabbi from the time of Jesus boasted that he would throw rocks at lepers to keep them far away from him. And people at the time of Jesus spoke very harshly about people who had leprosy. And Jesus freely touched people with leprosy. While people traditionally with leprosy suffered banishment from their family and neighbours, Jesus broke that tradition. He treated lepers with compassion, touching and healing them many, many years ago now, probably over 30 years ago, I worked in a place called Focus Youth Centre that was run by our church. And uh, it was one of the guys came along to our church, had AIDS. He um, had blood transfusions and he caught it through that. And every time he had cuts, he would come to our youth centre and I'd, I'd bandage him up. And uh, at that time, people were petrified of, lepro- of um, AIDS. People thought you might get it from the air. It may be uh, given by mosquitoes, mosquito, you know, takes blood out of one person, gives it to the next person and therefore you might be able to catch aid. So you can imagine the fear and the horror and the devastation at, at that time. He was so harsh that his wife left him saying, I cannot live with you because I'm in fear of my own very life. And he'd arrive and we'd bandage him up. I had nice too to know, even to know uh, the potential dangers. He didn't use gloves because we didn't, just didn't know. But it was one of the few places that he got accepted how much more were these lepers accepted? What about leprosy today? Most new cases of leprosy occur in only 14 countries. Half of all lepers occur in India today. So uh, what about modern countries like uh, Australia and America? 200 cases per year of leprosy are reported in the United States. Here in Australia, between 2005 and 2009... The World Health Organization reported that there were 45 cases of leprosy here in Australia. Does anybody know where the closest leper colony was to us here in Sydney? You will know, Jen. It's now a chronic fatigue centre. Prince Henry Hospital. Go to Prince Henry, the chronic fatigue centre. It's away from everything else. Why? Because that was a leprosarium. Of the 13 newest cases of leprosy in Australia, 12 were people who were born overseas. So really we don't have much of a problem with leprosy. Um, It did uh, do damage to our Aboriginals, but it's nearly uh, unknown now. However, our neighbours, New Guinea has 388 cases in 2015, and Timor, the new country that has uh, been greatly impacted by the Presbyterian Church, has 111 cases of leprosy. Let's turn to the patches now, remembering this passage about a leper is about a man who was considered unclean, destitute, and uh, had no dealings with his family, had no dealings with friends. He would only make friends with other lepers. So, there in Mark 1, verse 40, a leper came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling beside him. If you will, you can make me clean. You man, this man is just begging his heart out for Jesus to heal him. Now Luke describes this whole man as being full of leprosy. There in Luke chapter 5, verse 12. What does that mean? I mean, this man's leprosy was full-blown. It was at the last advanced stages. The whole man's body and his life was rotting before your eyes. What does Jesus do there in verse 41? Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and he touched him and said, I will be clean. Now it was against the Bible and against Jewish ceremonial law to touch a leper. Yet Jesus did not break the law because as soon as he touched the man, he was no longer a leper, but he was clean. Verse 42, Immediately the leprosy left him. He became clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing. What Moses commanded for proof to them. what does he want to show himself to the priests? Jesus told the leper to go to the priests so they could carry out the ceremonial uh, cleaning and say that the leper is cleansed. But far deeper is to say, this incurable disease is cured. What was there for life is gone. What was filth and death, the person in front of you now is full of life. So Jesus does this to honour the law of God. And as a testimony to the high priest and the priests that an incurable disease has been indeed cured. Now it's interesting, the elements used in the Levitical ceremony for the cleansing of leper, which was cedar wood, hyssop and scarlet, are the very same elements used in cleansing someone who's been defiled by a dead body. So you can see the harshness about how stark and how badly lepers were treated. And why does the Bible focus on leper? It's to say the very worst thing our society has that we hate the most, Jesus can change that. Verse 45. And he went out and began to talk freely about them and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out to desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Now it's interesting, as we go to the New Testament, as we go to the Bible, physical healing was never the central point of Jesus' earthly mission. So what was this point? Luke 19 says, To seek and to save that which is lost. To provide salvation, redemption, and eternal life to sinners. His one message from the very first words of Mark to the end of Mark is that of the gospel. A call to repentance and a call to respond. So as it says in Matthew 4, 17, From that time Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That will ultimately lead to people's eternal life and their rest for their weary souls. Why do we follow Jesus? Because Jesus said to us in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take your yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now as Jesus travelled around, he did encounter multitudes of sick, lame, lepers, blind and other physically suffering people. The Bible tells that he healed every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And those physical healings were vivid displays of both Jesus' power and more importantly of Jesus' compassion for people. They were proof of his deity that he was God and a living demonstration of his divine authority over sickness. They established for Jesus an unlimited power to liberate anyone and everyone from bondage, the penalty and the consequences of sin. As such, the healing ministry of Jesus was illustrative of the gospel message that he preached. That the healing was a true expression of divine compassion. But it's also the definitive verification of his messianic credentials that he was the Christ. He is the Son of God. And that's one of the reasons why he did it. The question that now falls to us in the modern church is, will everybody who prays today be healed? Paul, when he wrote in the church in Philippi, says this in chapter 1, To you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So somehow, suffering is not one of the things that will necessarily go when we become believers. Now sadly, a lot of the suffering as believers is because the world will persecute us. But when the gospel is announced, there is both the physical healings are merely symbolising a far more vital and far more lasting message. And a message which is far more real, and far more momentous. Yes, healing brings temporary relief. But Jesus' purpose was eternal relief. Yes, healings will bring you temporary satisfaction. But our true satisfaction is found on the day we start in heaven. This just want to finish with these words from 2 Corinthians 4. So do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self has been renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond our comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. There are healings today. And if someone was sick in our church, the first thing i do would be pray for that person to be healed. And many times that person may be healed by God. I had the joy of seeing people with cancer who are healed. We had one lovely lady who um, was about to go under the knife and the doctor said, the day before surgery, I just want to do one final inspection before we operate on you the next day. And she comes in and says, look, I'm sorry, the test didn't seem to work, can we test you a second time? And she says, all right, fair enough then, he's got tested a second time, look, I'm sure, you know, the, I know the cancer's there, but the machine's not reading properly. We we're going to test you a third time, but on a different machine. And if he came back and said, look, I don't know what to do. This is really embarrassing. Tomorrow we're going to operate on cancer, but today it's not there. I don't know what to do. Do you mind if I operate anyway just to see what's not there? And she graciously allowed him to look. And he came back and said, no cancer there whatsoever. But it was there on the screen beforehand. It really frustrated the poor doctor. But she had been prayed for. She had been loved by her church. And by God in His mercy at that moment in time brought about healing. I have no idea who God will heal and who he will not heal. I will pray for healing, living in God's hands. But we're also told that the things of this world, the things of the scene, are transient. What is more important is that which is eternal. Let's just bow our heads in prayer. Father, help us fix our eyes on that which is eternal. And our heart's desire be to serve you and your gospel, to pray for your kingdom to come. We pray this now and every day that we live. Amen. We start our brand new series and uh, this will take us through to Easter. And we're going through Mark's gospel. We went through Mark's gospel a couple of years ago. And so these are the passages that we didn't preach on the last time. So it's here in uh, Mark's gospel uh, many people believe it was the first gospel that was out of the, the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. So some people debate uh, about this, but Mark clearly looks like it was the first one. And the very first words of Mark's gospel tell us why he's writing his gospel. They're in Mark 1 verse 1. He says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's unpack that. He says it's about Jesus. And who is Jesus? He's the Christ. And he's also the Son of God. So Christ is a term you'd use with the Jews to say God, uh, God's special anointed one has come. And Son of God is a term you use with the Gentiles saying that Jesus was God's unique one and only Son. And of course, gospel uh, is going to be unpacked as we get through the first uh, chapter. So there in chapter 1, verse 15 and 14, it says, Now after John was arrested, as in John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And then in verse 15, it tells us what is the gospel. He says, The time is fulfilled. In other words, his arriving in Israel was the start of a brand new event in time and space. And it has three aspects to it. The first thing he says is this The kingdom of God is at hand. Well, the kingdom of God is near. So that's the first thing, it's about the kingdom of God. And we'll look at what that means in a moment. The second part of the gospel is that you need to repent. You need to confess to God that you are sorry for the sins you have done. And the third is you need to believe in the gospel. And so somehow the word gospel and the word kingdom of God are intertwined in the gospels. So what does kingdom of God actually mean? Now it's mentioned 126 times in the gospels, but hardly ever in the New Testament letters. Now the word kingdom in the Bible means God's reign or God's rule or God is in control, that God governs all things. And back in Psalm 103, it says this, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. As a good Presbyterian, one of the things we really talk about God is that He's the sovereign Lord. In other words, the title of uh, Extreme Majesty Now, since God's purpose for the world is to save people for himself, he needs to renew the world for its people. So his kingly rule implies that he wants to save us and redeem us, and that is the core purpose of his kingdom happening. So that when Jesus dies to save sinners who repent, where do we see God's reign? First of all, we see God's reign in the heart of believers. So every believer has a relationship with God, And their aim is to fight Satan, sin, and death. The second way we see the kingdom of God is as we meet together as believers in the church, the body of Christ, we are gathering as citizens of a new kingdom, not dominated by the views of the world, but dominated by the views of Christ. That's why the church so often clashes with society. Society says, This is our value. And we'll say, but this is our value. Now it's interesting, things like humility, we take humility now as the norm. Back when the New Testament was written, and they talked about humility, people thought that humility was a sign of weakness, not a sign of strength. Yet you and I as Christians say, but humility is what we should be. We should be humble. That is a sign of strength. There's an exact turnaround from how society saw things. If we think of things like marriage, we see the sacredness of a husband and wife and children. That unit is sacred. That is a modern Christian view. Lots of cultures, lots of societies throughout the whole of history have regularly belittled and devalued the role of the family. And where is the kingdom of God seen in the third space? It's seen in the heart of believers. It's seen in the church meeting. It is seen the day that Jesus comes back to rule the earth and then His kingdom will be proclaimed fully. So there we'll have a new heaven and a new earth. Now the gospel shows that the kingdom of God is both present and in the future. It is now but to be fulfilled. We're nearly there but not quite. You can hear the future mission when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, or your kingdom come. We are praying daily in the Lord's Prayer for Jesus to bring his kingdom about. And we should pray that every day. Now bring the kingdom, Lord. Is not here the way we want it to be. Bring your kingdom, bring your rule, fully in the lives of believers first, and then ultimately in the world. Therefore, Jesus can say the kingdom is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It would be easy for Jesus followers to think that they could make him an earthly king. And at different times they you go through the Gospels, you see they did try and make him into an earthly king. They wanted him to make his kingdom happen in an earthly way. And Jesus is saying, No, my kingdom is far bigger, far more significant than the physical realm around you. Jesus knew that his death upon the cross would open the door to heaven and his kingdom would reign. This is why the kingdom of God in the Gospels is fulfilled in the rest of the New Testament, who don't use the term kingdom, but talk about Jesus is Lord. So Jesus being our Lord, and the kingdom and the gospel are all intertwined terms. Now as we come today to this uh, leprosy and the healing of a leper, it's interesting the New Testament has three words it uses to describe miracles. The first is it says it's a power, which means mighty deed that God is doing. Secondly, it is a sign which refers to a miracle that has figurative represents something else. Such as this healing represents the work of the kingdom of God. It's a symbolism. The third word they use is wonder. So you have power, signs and wonder. And wonder indicates that something extraordinary is about to happen. Now sometimes Jesus calls on his Father in performing miracles. At other times he'll do his miracles in his own authority. What's more, it just gives us the subtle implications of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity. So when we come to the Gospels, we find that there are 37 miracles that occur. Now, some of the uh, miracles will occur in more than one Gospel, so their stories are repeated, but there's 37 of them. Of the 37, 11 are creation miracles. Jesus walks on water. Jesus calms a storm. On four occasions, Jesus will take demons or drive demons out of people. And four times, he'll get people who are dead and bring them to life again. But the most significant area of his miracles is healings. There are 20 different times that he performs healings. Now sometimes it's described that healings are done in general to the community. Other times it's very specific and Jesus heals one person. So healings could be withered hands, could be blind who could see, disabled who could walk, the invalid, the paralytic, or deaf could once more hear. Now in Mark 1 we have this story. Now just before it says this, Immediately Jesus left the synagogue in the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So he's there with four disciples. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And so we have the uh, implications there's 12 apostles. One of the apostles at least had a uh, wife and therefore a mother-in-law. And uh, so immediately Jesus uh, was told about her. He came and took her by the hand, lifted her up, and the fever left her like that. And typical of any good mother or mother-in-law, what does she do? She starts serving her food. You know, oh, you poor boys, you look so hungry. I have to feed you, and so she does what is normal. So, what's the response to Jesus curing the mother-in-law? Very crisp. Quickly, people start whispering around the village. So it says in verse 32: That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew who he was. And so we see right at this very beginning, as Jesus starts his ministry, his ministry is very strong focused saying, I want to preach the kingdom of God. I want to call people to repentance. But because of his love and compassion on those who are struggling, people just don't hear the message only. They say, oh, but I've got a sick relative. I've got to bring them straight away. So now let's turn to the leper. Why is this leper, and why is leprosy so significant? Now the term leprosy, it could be lepers, or leprosy or leprous, it occurs 68 times in the Bible, 55 times in the Old Testament, 13 times in the New. So what is leprosy? Now it wasn't until 1873 that it was given a specific typo called Henson's disease. It was given actually in 1873 when Gerard Henson described the leprous uh, basilius. It was only at this point did leprosy finally have a definition for what was happening. Now, for many separate uh, centuries, leprosy was considered a curse of God and was often associated with sin. The earliest record we've been able to find of leprosy is about 600 BC. So it's a disease that has been part of uh, most countries in the uh, area of uh, Bible lands for centuries. But what's the trouble with leprosy? It did not kill you. But it did last forever and your body would slowly, exhaustively waste away to nothing. You would linger there with your body deforming and your tissues degenerating. Many have thought that leprosy was a skin disease. In reality, it's actually a nerve disease would be a better classification. Now, the Bible uses the term leprosy But it covers not just leprosy as in what we use today, but any of those major skin diseases. So it covers a far broader uh, uh, spectrum that even includes things like mould and mildew. Now, in the Old Testament, God said that when there were lepers among the people of Israel, they should be carefully quarantined and examined. We see that in Leviticus 13 and 14. So what did that mean? If you were a leper, you had to dress like people who were mourning for the dead. So the very clothes you wore were that of a funeral because people considered that you were the living dead. How devastating would it be if you caught leprosy? As you walked through the streets, you had to yell out as people came near you, unclean, unclean, unclean. And those words be on your lips every moment of the day. A rabbi from the time of Jesus boasted that he would throw rocks at lepers to keep them far away from him. And people at the time of Jesus spoke very harshly about people who had leprosy. And Jesus freely touched people with leprosy. While people traditionally with leprosy suffered banishment from their family and neighbours, Jesus broke that tradition. He treated lepers with compassion, touching and healing them. Many, many years ago now, probably over 30 years ago, I worked in a place called Focus Youth Centre that was run by our church. And uh, it was one of the guys came along to our church, had AIDS. He um, had blood transfusions and he caught it through that. And every time he had cuts, he would come to our youth centre and I'd, I'd bandage him up. And uh, at that time, people were petrified of, leper, uh, of um, AIDS. People thought you might get it from the air. It may be uh, given by mosquitoes, mosquito, you know, Takes blood out of one person, gives it to the next person, and therefore you might be able to catch aid. So you can imagine the fear and the horror and the devastation at, at that time. He was so harsh that his wife left him, saying, I cannot live with you because I'm in fear of my own very life. And he'd arrive and we'd bandage him up. I had nice to know, even to know uh, the potential dangers. He didn't use gloves because we didn't, just didn't know. But it was one of the few places that he got accepted how much more were these lepers accepted what about leprosy today most new cases of leprosy occur in only 14 countries half of all lepers occur in india today so what about modern countries like australia and america 200 cases per year of leprosy are reported in united uh, united states here in australia between 2005 and 2009 The World Health Organization reported that there were 45 cases of leprosy here in Australia. Does anybody know where the closest leper colony was to us here in Sydney? You will know, Jen. It's now a chronic fatigue center. Prince Henry Hospital. Yeah. Go to Prince Henry, the chronic fatigue center. It's away from everything else. Why? Because that was a leprosarium. Of the 13 newest cases of leprosy in Australia, 12 were people who were born overseas. So really we don't have much of a problem with leprosy. Um, It did uh, do damage to our Aboriginals, but it's nearly uh, unknown now. However, our neighbours, New Guinea has 388 cases in 2015, and Timor, the new country that has uh, been greatly impacted by the Presbyterian Church, has 111 cases of leprosy. Let's turn to the patches now, remembering this passage about a leper is about a man who was considered unclean, destitute, and uh, had no dealings with his family, had no dealings with friends. He would only make friends with other lepers. So, there in Mark 1, verse 40, a leper came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling beside him. If you will, you can make me clean. You man, this man is just begging his heart out for Jesus to heal him. Now Luke describes this whole man as being full of leprosy there in Luke chapter 5, verse 12. What does that mean? It means this man's leprosy was full-blown. It was at the last advanced stages. The whole man's body and his life was rotting before your eyes. What does Jesus do there in verse 41? Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and he touched him and said, I will be clean. Now it was against the Bible and against Jewish ceremonial law to touch a leper. Yet Jesus did not break the law because as soon as he touched the man, he was no longer a leper, but he was clean. Verse 42, Immediately the leprosy left him. He became clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. What does he want to show himself to the priests? Jesus told the leper to go to the priests so they could carry out the ceremonial uh, cleaning and say that the leper is cleansed. But far deeper is to say, this incurable disease is cured. What was there for life is gone. What was filth and death, the person in front of you now is full of life. So Jesus does this to honour the law of God. And as a testimony to the high priest and the priests that an incurable disease has been indeed cured. Now it's interesting, the elements used in the Levitical ceremony for the cleansing of leper, which was cedar wood, hyssop and scarlet, are the very same elements used in cleansing someone who's been defiled by a dead body. So you can see the harshness about how stark and how badly lepers were treated. And why does the Bible focus on leper? It's to say the very worst thing our society has that we hate the most, Jesus can change that. Verse 45. And he went out and began to talk freely about them and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but went out to desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Now it's interesting, as we go to the New Testament, as we go to the Bible, physical healing was never the central point of Jesus' earthly mission. So what was this point? Luke 19 says, To seek and to save that which is lost. To provide salvation, redemption, and eternal life to sinners. His one message from the very first words of Mark to the end of Mark is that of the Gospel. A call to repentance and a call to respond. So as it says in Matthew 4.17, From that time Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That will ultimately lead to people's eternal life and their rest for their weary souls. Why do we follow Jesus? Because Jesus said to us in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take your yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now as Jesus travelled around, he did encounter multitudes of sick, lame, lepers, blind and other physically suffering people. The Bible tells us that he healed every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And those physical healings were vivid displays of both Jesus' power and more importantly of Jesus' compassion for people. They were proof of his deity that he was God and a living demonstration of his divine authority over sickness. They established for Jesus an unlimited power to liberate anyone and everyone from bondage, the penalty and the consequences of sin. As such, the healing ministry of Jesus was illustrative of the gospel message that he preached. That the healing was a true expression of divine compassion. But it's also the definitive verification of his messianic credentials, that he was the Christ. He is the Son of God. And that's one of the reasons why he did it. The question that now falls to us in the modern church is, will everybody who prays today be healed? Paul, when he wrote in the church in Philippi, says this in chapter 1, To you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So somehow, suffering is not one of the things that will necessarily go when we become believers. Now sadly, a lot of the suffering as believers is because the world will persecute us. But when the gospel is announced, there is both the physical healings merely symbolising a far more vital and far more lasting message. And a message which is far more real, and far more momentous. Yes, healing brings temporary relief. But Jesus' purpose was eternal relief. Yes, healings will bring you temporary satisfaction. But our true satisfaction is found on the day we start in heaven. This just I want to finish with these words from 2 Corinthians 4. So do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self has been renewed day by day. For this life, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond our comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. There are healings today. And if someone was sick in our church, the first thing i do would be pray for that person to be healed. And many times that person may be healed by God. I had the joy of seeing people with cancer who are healed. We had one lovely lady who um, was about to go under the knife. And the doctor said, the day before surgery, I just want to do one final inspection before we operate on you the next day. And she comes in and says, look, I'm sorry, the test didn't seem to work. Can we test you a second time? And she says, all right, fair enough then. it has got tested a second time. Was, look, I'm sure, you know, the, I know the cancer's there, but the machine's not reading properly. We we're going to test you a third time, but on a different machine. And if come on, he came back and said, look, I don't know what to do. This is really embarrassing. Tomorrow we're going to operate on cancer, but today it's not there. I don't know what to do. Do you mind if I operate anyway just to see what's not there? And she graciously allowed him to look. And he came back and said, no cancer there whatsoever. But it was there on the screen beforehand. It really frustrated the poor doctor. But she had been prayed for. She had been loved by her church. And by God in his mercy at that moment in time brought about healing. I have no idea who God will heal and who he will not heal. I will pray for healing, living in God's hands. But we're also told that the things of this world, the things of the scene, are transient. What is more important is that which is eternal. Let's just bow heads in prayer. Father, help us fix our eyes on that which is eternal. May our heart's desire be to serve you and your gospel, to pray for your kingdom to come. We pray this now and every day that we live. Amen. We start our brand new series and uh, this will take us through to Easter. And we're going through Mark's gospel. We went through Mark's gospel a couple of years ago. And so these are the passages that we didn't preach on the last time. So it's here in uh, Mark's gospel uh, many people believe it was the first gospel that was out of the, the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. So some people debate uh, about this, but Mark clearly looks like it was the first one. And the very first words of Mark's gospel tell us why he's writing his gospel. They're in Mark 1 verse 1. He says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's unpack that. He says it's about Jesus. And who is Jesus? He's the Christ. And he's also the Son of God. So Christ is is a term you'd use with the Jews to say God, uh, God's special anointed one has come. And Son of God is a term you use with the Gentiles saying that Jesus was God's unique one and only Son. And of course, gospel uh, is going to be unpacked as we get through the first uh, chapter. So there in chapter 1, verse 15 and 14, it says, Now after John was arrested, as in John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And then in verse 15, it tells us what is the gospel. He says, the time is fulfilled. In other words, his arriving in Israel was the start of a brand new event in time and space. And it has three aspects to it. The first he says is this, the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, the kingdom of God is near. So that's the first thing is about the kingdom of God. And we'll look at what that means in a moment. The second part of the gospel is that you need to repent. You need to confess to God that you are sorry for the sins you have done. And the third is you need to believe in the gospel. And so, somehow, the word gospel and the word kingdom of God are intertwined in the gospels. So, what does kingdom of God actually mean? Now, it's mentioned 126 times in the gospels, but hardly ever in the New Testament letters. Now, the word kingdom in the Bible means God's reign or God's rule or God is in control, that God governs all things. And back in Psalm 103, it says this, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. As a good Presbyterian, one of the things we really talk about God is that He's the sovereign Lord. In other words, the title of uh, uh, Extreme Majesty, Now, since God's purpose for the world is to save people for himself, he needs to renew the world for its people. So his kingly rule implies that he wants to save us and redeem us, and that is the core purpose of his kingdom happening. So that when Jesus dies to save sinners who repent, where do we see God's reign? First of all, we see God's reign in the heart of believers. So every believer has a relationship with God, and their aim is to fight Satan, sin, and death. The second way we see the kingdom of God is as we meet together as believers in the church, the body of Christ, we are gathering as citizens of a new kingdom, not dominated by the views of the world, but dominated by the views of Christ. That's why the church so often clashes with society. Society says, this is our value. And we'll say, but this is our value. Now it's interesting, things like humility, we take humility now as the norm. Back when the New Testament was written, and they talked about humility, people thought that humility was a sign of weakness, not a sign of strength. Yet you and I as Christians say, but humility is what we should be. We should be humble. That is a sign of strength. There's an exact turnaround from how society saw things. If we think of things like marriage, we see the sacredness of a husband and wife and children. That unit is sacred. That is a modern Christian view. Lots of cultures, lots of societies throughout the whole of history have regularly belittled and devalued the role of the family. And where is the kingdom of God seen in the third space? It's seen in the heart of believers. It's seen in the church meeting. It is seen the day that Jesus comes back to rule the earth and then His kingdom will be proclaimed fully. So there we'll have a new heaven and a new earth. Now the gospel shows that the kingdom of God is both present and in the future. It is now but to be fulfilled. We're nearly there but not quite. You can hear the future mention when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, or your kingdom come. We are praying daily in the Lord's Prayer Jesus to bring his kingdom about and we should pray that every day now bring the kingdom Lord It is not here the way we want it to be bring your kingdom bring your rule fully in the lives of believers first and then ultimately in the world therefore Jesus can say the kingdom is at hand repent for the kingdom of God is at hand it would be easy for Jesus followers to think that they could make him an earthly king And at different times you go through the Gospels, you see they did try and make him into an earthly king. They wanted him to make his kingdom happen in an earthly way. And Jesus is saying, no, my kingdom is far bigger, far more significant than the physical realm around you. Jesus knew that his death upon the cross would open the door to heaven and his kingdom would reign. This is why the kingdom of God in the Gospels is fulfilled in the rest of the New Testament, who don't use the term kingdom, but talk about Jesus is Lord. So Jesus being our Lord and the Kingdom and the Gospel are all intertwined terms. Now as we come today to this uh, leprosy and the healing of a leper, it's interesting the New Testament has three words it uses to describe miracles. The first is it says it's a power, which means mighty deed that God is doing. Secondly, it is a sign which refers to a miracle that has figurative represents something else such as this healing represents the work of the kingdom of God. There's a symbolism. The third word they use is wonder. So you have power, signs, and wonder. And wonder indicates that something extraordinary is about to happen. Now sometimes Jesus calls on his Father in performing miracles. Other times he'll do his miracles in his own authority. Once more, it just gives us the subtle implications of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity. So when we come to the Gospels, we find that there are 37 miracles that occur. Now, some of the uh, miracles will occur in more than one Gospel, so their stories are repeated, but there's 37 of them. Of the 37, 11 are creation miracles. Jesus walks on water. Jesus calms a storm. On four occasions, Jesus will take demons or drive demons out of people. And four times, he'll get people who are dead and bring them to life again. But the most significant area of his miracles is healings. There are 20 different times that he performs healings. Now sometimes it's described that healings are done in general to the community. Other times it's very specific and Jesus heals one person. So healings could be withered hands, could be blind who could see, disabled who could walk, the invalid, the paralytic, or deaf could once more hear. Now in Mark 1 we have this story. Now just before it says this, Immediately Jesus left the synagogue in the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So he's there with four disciples. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And so we have the uh, implications there's 12 apostles. One of the apostles at least had a wife and therefore a mother-in-law. And uh, so immediately Jesus uh, was told about her. He came and took her by the hand, lifted her up and the fever left her like that. And typical of any good mother or mother in law, what does she do? She starts serving her food. You know, oh, you poor boys, you look so hungry, I have to feed you. And so she does what is normal. So, what's the response to Jesus curing the mother in law? Very crisp, quickly, people start whispering around the village. So it says in verse 32, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew who he was. And so we see right at this very beginning, as Jesus starts his ministry, his ministry is very strong focused, saying, I want to preach the kingdom of God. I want to call people to repentance. But because of his love and compassion on those who are struggling, people just don't hear the message only. They say, oh, but I've got a sick relative. I've got to bring them straight away. So now let's turn to the leper. Why is this leper and why is leprosy so significant? Now the term leprosy, it could be lepers, or leprosy or leprous, it occurs 68 times in the Bible, 55 times in the Old Testament, 13 times in the New. So what is leprosy? Now it wasn't until 1873 that it was given a specific type called Henson's disease. It was given that in 1873 when Gerard Henson described the leprous uh, bacillus. It was only at this point did leprosy finally have a definition for what was happening. Now, for many separate, uh, centuries, leprosy was considered a curse of God and was often associated with sin. The earliest record we've been able to find of leprosy is about 600 BC. So it's a disease that has been part of uh, most countries in the uh, area of uh, Bible lands for centuries. But what's the trouble with leprosy? It did not kill you but it did last forever and your body would slowly, exhaustively waste away to nothing. You would linger there with your body deforming and your tissues degenerating. Many have thought that leprosy was a skin disease. In reality, it's actually a nerve disease would be a better classification. Now, the Bible uses the term leprosy But it covers not just leprosy as in what we use today, but any of those major skin diseases. So it covers a far broader uh, uh, spectrum that even includes things like mould and mildew. Now, in the Old Testament, God said that when there were lepers among the people of Israel, they should be carefully quarantined and examined. We see that in Leviticus 13 and 14. So what did that mean? If you were a leper, you had to dress like people who were mourning for the dead. So the very clothes you wore were that of a funeral because people considered that you were the living dead. How devastating would it be if you caught leprosy? As you walked through the streets, you had to yell out as people came near you, unclean, unclean, unclean. And those words be on your lips every moment of the day. A rabbi from the time of Jesus boasted that he would throw rocks at lepers to keep them far away from him. And people at the time of Jesus spoke very harshly about people who had leprosy. And Jesus freely touched people with leprosy. While people traditionally with leprosy suffered banishment from their family and neighbours, Jesus broke that tradition. He treated lepers with compassion, touching and healing them it many, many years ago now, probably over 30 years ago, I worked in a place called Focus Youth Centre that was run by our church. And uh, it was one of the guys who came along to our church, had AIDS. He um, had blood transfusions and he caught it through that. And every time he had cuts, he would come to our youth centre and I'd I'd bandage him up. And uh, at that time, people were petrified of of, um, AIDS. People thought you might get it. From the air, it may be uh, given by mosquitoes. A mosquito, you know, takes blood out of one person, gives it to the next person, and therefore you might be able to catch AIDS. So you can imagine the fear and the horror and the devastation at, at that time. He was so harsh that his wife left him, saying, I cannot live with you because I'm in fear of my own very life. And he'd arrive and we'd bandage him up. I had nice too naive to know, to know uh, the potential dangers. He didn't use gloves because we didn't, just didn't know but it was one of the few places that he got accepted. How much more were these lepers accepted? What about leprosy today? Most new cases of leprosy occur in only 14 countries. Half of all lepers occur in India today. So uh, what about modern countries like uh, Australia and America? 200 cases per year of leprosy are reported in the United States. Here in Australia, between 2005 and 2009, the World Health Organisation reported that there were 45 cases of leprosy here in Australia. Does anybody know where the closest leper colony was to us here in Sydney? You will know, Jen. It's now a chronic fatigue centre. Prince Henry Hospital. Yeah. Go to Prince Henry, the chronic fatigue centre. It's away from everything else. Why? because that was a leprosarian. Of the 13 newest cases of leprosy in Australia, 12 were people who were born overseas. So really, we don't have much of a problem with leprosy. Um, It did uh, do damage to our Aboriginals, but it's nearly uh, unknown now. However, our neighbours, New Guinea has 388 cases in 2015, and Timor, the new country that has uh, been greatly impacted by the Presbyterian Church, has 111 cases of leprosy. Let's turn to the patches now, remembering this passage about a leper is about a man who was considered unclean, destitute, and uh, had no dealings with his family, had no dealings with friends. He would only make friends with other lepers. So there in Mark 1, verse 40, a leper came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling beside him, if you will, you can make me clean. You man, This man is just... Begging his heart out for Jesus to heal him. Now, Luke describes this whole man as being full of leprosy there in Luke chapter 5, verse 12. What does that mean? I mean, this man's leprosy was full blown, it was at the last advanced stages. The whole man's body and his life was rotting before your eyes. What does Jesus do there in verse 41? Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and he touched him and said, I will be clean. Now it was against the Bible and against Jewish ceremonial law to touch a leper. Yet Jesus did not break the law because as soon as he touched the man, he was no longer a leper, but he was clean. Verse 42, Immediately the leprosy left him. He became clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. See, that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. What does he want to show himself to the priests? Jesus told the leper to go to the priests so they could carry out the ceremonial uh, cleaning, and say the leper is cleansed, but far deeper is to say, this incurable disease is cured. What was there for life is gone. What was filth and death? The person in front of you now is full of life. So Jesus does this to honour the law of God. And as a testimony to the high priest and the priests that an incurable disease has been indeed cured. Now it's interesting, the elements used in the Levitical ceremony for the cleansing of leper, which was cedar wood, hyssop and scarlet, are the very same elements used in cleansing someone who's been defiled by a dead body. So you can see the harshness about how stark and how badly lepers were treated. And why does the Bible focus on leper? It's to say the very worst thing our society has that we hate the most, Jesus can change that. Verse 45. And he went out and began to talk freely about them and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but went out to desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Interesting, as we go to the New Testament, as we go to the Bible, physical healing was never the central point of Jesus' earthly mission. So what was this point? Luke 19 says, To seek and to save that which is lost, to provide salvation, redemption, and eternal life to sinners. His one message from the very first words of Mark to the end of Mark is that of the Gospel. A call to repentance and a call to respond. So as it says in Matthew four seventeen, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That will ultimately lead to people's eternal life and their rest for their weary souls. Why do we follow Jesus? Because Jesus said to us in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take your yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now as Jesus travelled around, He did encounter multitudes of sick, lame, lepers, blind and other physically suffering people. The Bible tells that He healed every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And those physical healings were vivid displays of both Jesus' power and, more importantly, of Jesus' compassion for people. They were proof of his deity that he was God and a living demonstration of his divine authority over sickness. They established for Jesus an unlimited power to liberate anyone and everyone from bondage, the penalty and the consequences of sin. As such, the healing ministry of Jesus was illustrative of the gospel message that he preached, that the healing was a true expression of divine compassion. But it's also the definitive verification of his messianic credentials, that he was the Christ. He is the Son of God. And that's one of the reasons why he did it. The question that now falls to us in the modern church is, will everybody who prays today be healed? Paul, when he wrote in the church in Philippi, says this in chapter 1. To you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. So somehow suffering is not one of the things that will necessarily go when we become believers. Now sadly a lot of the suffering as believers is because the world will persecute us. But when the gospel is announced there is both the physical healings are merely symbolising a far more vital and far more lasting message. And a message which is far more real and far more momentous. Yes, healing brings temporary relief, but Jesus' purpose was eternal relief. Yes, healings will bring you temporary satisfaction, but our true satisfaction is found on the day we start in heaven. This is just, I just want to finish with these words from 2 Corinthians 4. So do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self has been renewed day by day. For this life, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond our comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, the things that are unseen are eternal. There are healings today, and if someone was sick in our church, the first thing I do would be pray for that person to be healed. And many times that person may be healed by God. I have had the joy of seeing people with cancer who are healed. We had one lovely lady who um, was about to go under the knife. And the doctor said, the day before surgery, I just want to do one final inspection before we operate on you the next day. And she comes in and says, look, I'm sorry, the test didn't seem to work. Can we test you a second time? And she says, all right, fair enough then. it has got test a second time. Was, look, I'm sure, you know, that... It, I know the cancer's there, but the machine's not reading properly. We're going to test you a third time, but on a different machine. And if I on, came back and said, look, I don't know what to do. <laughs> this is really embarrassing. Tomorrow we're going to operate on cancer, but today it's not there. <laughs> I don't know what to do. Do you mind if I operate anyway just to see what's not there? And she graciously allowed him to look, and he came back and said, no cancer there whatsoever. But it was there on the screen beforehand. It really frustrated the poor doctor. But she had been prayed for. She had been loved by her church and by God in His mercy at that moment in time brought about healing. I have no idea who God will heal and who we will not heal. I will pray for healing, living in God's hands. But we're also told that the things of this world, the things of the scene, are transient. What is more important is that which is eternal. Let's just bow heads in prayer. Father, help us fix our eyes on that which is eternal. May our hearts' desire be to serve you and your gospel, to pray for your kingdom to come. We pray this now and every day that we live. Amen. We start our brand new series, and uh, this will take us through to Easter. And we're going through Mark's gospel. We went through Mark's gospel a couple of years ago, and so these are the passages that we didn't preach on the last time. So here in Mark's Gospel, uh, many people believe it was the first Gospel that was out of the the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. So some people debate uh, about this, but Mark clearly looks like it was the first one. And the very first words of Mark's Gospel tell us why he's writing his Gospel. There in Mark 1 verse 1, he says, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's unpack that. He says it's about Jesus and who is Jesus. He's the Christ. And He's also the Son of God. So Christ is a term you'd use with the Jews to say God, uh, God's special anointed one has come. And Son of God is a term you use with the Gentiles saying that Jesus was God's unique one and only Son. And of course, gospel uh, is going to be unpacked as we get through the first uh, chapter. So there in chapter 1, verse 15 and 14, it says, Now after John was arrested, as in John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And then in verse 15, it tells us what is the gospel. He says the time is fulfilled. In other words, his arriving in Israel was the start of a brand new event in time and space. And it has three aspects to it. The first he says is this, the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, the kingdom of God is near. So that's the first thing is about the kingdom of God. And we'll look at what that means in a moment. The second part of the gospel is that you need to repent. You need to confess to God that you are sorry for the sins you have done. And the third is you need to believe in the gospel. And so somehow the word gospel and the word kingdom of God are intertwined in the gospels. So what does kingdom of God actually mean? Now it's mentioned 126 times in the gospels, but hardly ever in the New Testament letters. Now the word kingdom in the Bible means God's reign or God's rule or God is in control. That God governs all things. And back in Psalm 103 it says this, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. As a good Presbyterian, one of the things we really talk about God is that He's the sovereign Lord. In other words, the title of uh, Extreme Majesty Now, since God's purpose for the world is to save people for himself, he needs to renew the world for its people. So his kingly rule implies that he wants to save us and redeem us, and that is the core purpose of his kingdom happening. So that when Jesus dies to save sinners who repent, where do we see God's reign? First of all, we see God's reign in the heart of believers. So every believer has a relationship with God, And their aim is to fight Satan, sin and death. The second way we see the kingdom of God is as we meet together as believers in the church, the body of Christ, we are gathering as citizens of a new kingdom, not dominated by the views of the world, but dominated by the views of Christ. That's why the church so often clashes with society. Society says, this is our value. And we'll say, but this is our value. Now it's interesting, things like humility, we take humility now as the norm. Back when the New Testament was written, and they talked about humility, people thought that humility was a sign of weakness, not a sign of strength. Yet you and I as Christians say, but humility is what we should be. We should be humble. That is a sign of strength. There's an exact turnaround from how society saw things. If we think of things like marriage, we see the sacredness of a husband and wife and children. That unit is sacred. That is a modern Christian view. Lots of cultures, lots of societies throughout the whole of history have regularly belittled and devalued the role of the family. And where is the kingdom of God seen in the third space? It's seen in the heart of believers. It's seen in the church meeting. It is seen the day that Jesus comes back to rule the earth and then His kingdom will be proclaimed fully. So there we'll have a new heaven and a new earth. Now the gospel shows that the kingdom of God is both present and in the future. It is now but to be fulfilled. We're nearly there but not quite. You can hear the future mission when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, or your kingdom come. We are praying daily in the Lord's Prayer for Jesus to bring his kingdom about. And we should pray that every day. Now bring the kingdom, Lord. He's not here the way we want it to be. Bring your kingdom, bring your rule, fully in the lives of believers first, and then ultimately in the world. Therefore, Jesus can say the kingdom is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It would be easy for Jesus followers to think that they could make him an earthly king. And at different times you go through the Gospels, you see they did try and make him into an earthly king. They wanted him to make his kingdom happen in an earthly way. And Jesus is saying, No, my kingdom is far bigger, far more significant than the physical realm around you. Jesus knew that his death upon the cross would open the door to heaven and his kingdom would reign. This is why the kingdom of God in the Gospels is fulfilled in the rest of the New Testament, who don't use the term kingdom, but talk about Jesus is Lord. So Jesus being our Lord, and the kingdom and the gospel are all intertwined terms. Now as we come today to this uh, leprosy and the healing of a leper, it's interesting the New Testament has three words it uses to describe miracles. The first is it says it's a power, which means mighty deed that God is doing. Secondly, it is a sign which refers to a miracle that has figurative represents something else. Such as this healing represents the work of the kingdom of God. There's a symbolism. The third word they use is wonder. So you have power, signs and wonder. And wonder indicates that something extraordinary is about to happen. Now sometimes Jesus calls on his Father in performing miracles. At other times he'll do his miracles in his own authority. What's more, it just gives us the subtle implications of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity. So when we come to the Gospels, we find that there are 37 miracles that occur. Now some of the uh, miracles will occur in more than one Gospel, so their stories are repeated, but there's 37 of them. Of the 37, 11 are creation miracles. Jesus walks on water. Jesus calms a storm. On four occasions, Jesus will take demons or drive demons out of people. And four times he'll get people who are dead and bring them to life again. But the most significant area of his miracles is healings. There are 20 different times that he performs healings. Now sometimes it's described that healings are done in general to the community. Other times it's very specific and Jesus heals one person. So healings could be withered hands, could be blind who could see, disabled who could walk, the invalid, the paralytic, or death could once more hear. Now, In Mark 1 we have this story. Now just before it says this, Immediately Jesus left the synagogue in the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So he's there with four disciples. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And so we have the uh, implications there's 12 apostles. One of the apostles at least had a wife and therefore a mother-in-law. And uh, so immediately Jesus uh, was told about her. He came and took her by the hand, lifted her up, and the fever left her like that. And typical of any good mother or mother-in-law, what does she do? She starts serving her food. You know, Oh, you poor boys, you look so hungry, I have to feed you. And so she does what is normal. So what's the response to Jesus curing the mother-in-law? Very quickly, people start whispering around the village. So it says in verse 3, That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew who He was. And so we see right at this very beginning, as Jesus starts His ministry, His ministry is very strong focused, saying, I want to preach the kingdom of God. I want to call people to repentance. But because of His love and compassion on those who are struggling, people just don't hear the message only. They say, oh, but I've got a sick relative. I've got to bring them straight away. So now let's turn to the leper. Why is this leper and why is leprosy so significant? Now the term leprosy, it could be lepers, or leprosy or leprous, it occurs 68 times in the Bible, 55 times in the Old Testament, 13 times in the New. So what is leprosy? Now it wasn't until 1873 that it was given a specific type of called Henson's disease. It was given actually in 1873 when Gerard Henson described the leprous uh, bacillus. It was only at this point did leprosy finally have a definition for what was happening. Now, for many separate uh, centuries, leprosy was considered a curse of God and was often associated with sin. The earliest record we've been able to find of leprosy is about 600 BC. So it's a disease that has been part of uh, most countries in the uh, area of uh, Bible lands for centuries. But what's the trouble with leprosy? It did not kill you. But it did last forever and your body would slowly, exhaustively waste away to nothing. You would linger there with your body deforming and your tissues degenerating. Many have thought that leprosy was a skin disease. In reality, it's actually a nerve disease would be a better classification. Now the Bible uses the term leprosy. But it covers not just leprosy as in what we use today, but any of those major skin diseases. So it covers a far broader uh, uh, spectrum that even includes things like mould and mildew. Now in the Old Testament, God said that when there were lepers among the people of Israel, they should be carefully quarantined and examined. We see that in Leviticus 13 and 14. So what did that mean? If you were a leper, you had to dress like people who were mourning for the dead. So the very clothes you wore were that of a funeral because people considered that you were the living dead. How devastating would it be if you caught leprosy? As you walked through the streets, you had to yell out as people came near you, unclean, unclean, unclean. And those words be on your lips every moment of the day. A rabbi from the time of Jesus boasted that he would throw rocks at lepers to keep them far away from him. And people at the time of Jesus spoke very harshly about people who had leprosy. And Jesus freely touched people with leprosy. While people traditionally with leprosy suffered banishment from their family and neighbours, Jesus broke that tradition. He treated lepers with compassion, touching and healing them many, many years ago now, probably over 30 years ago, I worked in a place called Focus Youth Centre that was run by our church. And uh, it was one of the guys came along to our church, had AIDS. He um, had blood transfusions and he caught it through that. And every time he had cuts, he would come to our youth centre and I'd, I'd bandage him up. And uh, at that time, people were petrified of, leper, uh, of um, AIDS. People thought you might get it from the air. It may be uh, given by mosquitoes, mosquito, you know, takes blood out of one person, gives it to the next person and therefore you might be able to catch aid. So you can imagine the fear and the horror and the devastation at, at that time. He was so harsh that his wife left him saying, I cannot live with you because I'm in fear of my own very life. And he'd arrive and we'd bandage him up. I had no nice idea to know, even to know uh, the potential dangers. He didn't use gloves because we didn't, just didn't know. But it was one of the few places that he got accepted how much more were these lepers accepted? What about leprosy today? Most new cases of leprosy occur in only 14 countries. Half of all lepers uh, occur in India today. So uh, what about modern countries like uh, Australia and America? 200 cases per year of leprosy are reported in the United States. Here in Australia, between 2005 and 2009... The World Health Organization reported that there were 45 cases of leprosy here in Australia. Does anybody know where the closest leper colony was to us here in Sydney? You will know, Jen. It's now a chronic fatigue centre. Prince Henry Hospital. Yeah. Go to Prince Henry, the chronic fatigue centre. It's away from everything else. Why? Because that was a leprosarium. Of the 13 newest cases of leprosy in Australia, 12 were people who were born overseas. So really we don't have much of a problem with leprosy. Um, It did uh, do damage to our Aboriginals, but it's nearly uh, unknown now. However, our neighbours, New Guinea has 388 cases in 2015, and Timor, the new country that has uh, been greatly impacted by the Presbyterian Church, has 111 cases of leprosy. Let's turn to the pages now, remembering this passage about a leper is about a man who was considered unclean, destitute, and uh, had no dealings with his family, had no dealings with friends. He would only make friends with other lepers. So, there in Mark 1, verse 40, a leper came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling beside him. If you will, you can make me clean. You man, this man is just begging his heart out for Jesus to heal him. Now, Luke describes this whole man as being full of leprosy there in Luke chapter 5, verse 12. What does that mean? I mean, this man's leprosy was full blown, it was at the last advanced stages. The whole man's body and his life was rotting before your eyes. What does Jesus do there in verse 41? Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and he touched him and said, I will be clean. Now it was against the Bible and against Jewish ceremonial law to touch a leper. Yet Jesus did not break the law because as soon as he touched the man, he was no longer a leper, but he was clean. Verse 42, Immediately the leprosy left him. He became clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. What does he want to show himself to the priests? Jesus told the leper to go to the priests so they could carry out the ceremonial uh, cleaning and say the leper is cleansed, but far deeper is to say this incurable disease is cured. What was there for life is gone. What was filth and death, the person in front of you now is full of life. So Jesus does this to honour the law of God. And as a testimony to the high priest and the priests that an incurable disease has been indeed cured. Now it's interesting, the elements used in the Levitical ceremony for the cleansing of leper, which was cedar wood, hyssop and scarlet, are the very same elements used in cleansing someone who's been defiled by a dead body. So you can see the harshness about how stark and how badly lepers were treated. And why does the Bible focus on leper? It's to say the very worst thing our society has that we hate the most, Jesus can change that. Verse 45. And he went out and began to talk freely about them and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but went out to desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Now it's interesting, as we go to the New Testament, as we go to the Bible, physical healing was never the central point of Jesus' earthly mission. So what was this point? Luke 19 says, To seek and to save that which is lost. To provide salvation, redemption and eternal life to sinners. His one message from the very first words of Mark to the end of Mark is that of the gospel. A call to repentance and a call to respond. So as it says in Matthew 4.17, From that time Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That will ultimately lead to people's eternal life and their rest for their weary souls. Why do we follow Jesus? Because Jesus said to us in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take your yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, as Jesus travelled around, he did encounter multitudes of sick, lame, lepers, blind, and other physically suffering people. The Bible tells us that he healed every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And those physical healings were vivid displays of both Jesus' power and, more importantly, of Jesus' compassion for people. They were proof of his deity that he was God and a living demonstration of his divine authority over sickness. They established for Jesus an unlimited power to liberate anyone and everyone from bondage, the penalty and the consequences of sin. As such, the healing ministry of Jesus was illustrative of the gospel message that he preached, that the healing was a true expression of divine compassion but it's also the definitive verification of his messianic credentials, that he was the Christ. He is the Son of God. And that's one of the reasons why he did it. The question that now falls to us in the modern church is, will everybody who prays today be healed? Paul, when he wrote in the church in Philippi, says this in chapter 1, To you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So somehow, suffering is not one of the things that will necessarily go when we become believers. Now sadly, a lot of the suffering as believers is because the world will persecute us. But when the Gospel is announced, there is both the physical healings are merely symbolising a far more vital and far more lasting message. And a message which is far more real, far more momentous. Yes, healing brings temporary relief. But Jesus' purpose was eternal relief. Yes, healings will bring you temporary satisfaction, but our true satisfaction is found on the day we start in heaven. This is just I want to finish with these words from 2 Corinthians 4. So do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self has been renewed day by day. For this life, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond our comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. There are healings today and if someone was sick in our church, the first thing i do would be pray for that person to be healed. And many times that person may be healed by God. I've had the joy of seeing people with cancer who are healed. We had one lovely lady who um, was about to go under the knife. And the doctor said, the day before surgery, I just want to do one final inspection before we operate on you the next day. And she comes in and says, Look, I'm sorry the test didn't seem to work. Can we test you a second time? And she says, All right, fair enough. Then it's got tested a second time. I was, Look, I'm sure, you know, i I know the cancer's there, but the machine's not reading properly. We we're going to test you a third time, but on a different machine. And if finally came back, he said, "Look, I don't know what to do. This is really embarrassing. Tomorrow we're going to operate on cancer, but today it's not there. I don't know what to do. Do you mind if I operate anyway, just to see what's not there?" And she graciously allowed him to look. And he came back and said, "No cancer there whatsoever, but it was there on the screen beforehand." It really frustrated the poor doctor. But she had been prayed for. She had been loved by her church. And by God in his mercy at that moment in time brought about healing. I have no idea who God will heal and who he will not heal. I will pray for healing, living in God's hands. But we're also told that the things of this world, the things of the scene, are transient. What is more important is that which is eternal. Let's just bow heads in prayer. Father, help us fix our eyes on that which is eternal. May our heart's desire be to serve you and your gospel, to pray for your kingdom to come. We pray this now and every day that we live. Amen. We start our brand new series, and uh, this will take us through to Easter. And we're going through Mark's gospel. We went through Mark's gospel a couple of years ago, and so these are the passages that we didn't preach on the last time. So it's here in uh, Mark's gospel uh, many people believe it was the first gospel that was out of the, the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. So some people debate uh, about this, but Mark clearly looks like it was the first one. And the very first words of Mark's gospel tell us why he's writing his gospel. They're in Mark 1 verse 1. He says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's unpack that. He says it's about Jesus. And who is Jesus? He's the Christ. And he's also the Son of God. So Christ is is a term you'd use with the Jews to say God, uh, God's special anointed one has come. And Son of God is a term you use with the Gentiles saying that Jesus was God's unique one and only Son. And of course, gospel uh, is going to be unpacked as we get through the first uh, chapter. So there in chapter 1, verse 15 and 14, it says, Now after John was arrested, as in John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And then in verse 15, it tells us what is the gospel. He says the time is fulfilled. In other words, his arriving in Israel was the start of a brand new event in time and space. And it has three aspects to it. The first he says is this, the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, the kingdom of God is near. So that's the first thing is about the kingdom of God. And we'll look at what that means in a moment. The second part of the gospel is that you need to repent. You need to confess to God that you are sorry for the sins you have done. And the third is you need to believe in the gospel. And so somehow the word gospel and the word kingdom of God are intertwined in the gospels. So what does kingdom of God actually mean? Now it's mentioned 126 times in the gospels, but hardly ever in the New Testament letters. Now the word kingdom in the Bible means God's reign or God's rule or God is in control. That God governs all things. And back in Psalm 103 it says this, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. As a good Presbyterian, one of the things we really talk about God is that He's the sovereign Lord. In other words, the title of uh, uh, Extreme Majesty Now, since God's purpose for the world is to save people for himself, he needs to renew the world for its people. So his kingly rule implies that he wants to save us and redeem us, and that is the core purpose of his kingdom happening. So that when Jesus dies to save sinners who repent, where do we see God's reign? First of all, we see God's reign in the heart of believers. So every believer has a relationship with God, And their aim is to fight Satan, sin, and death. The second way we see the kingdom of God is as we meet together as believers in the church, the body of Christ, we are gathering as citizens of a new kingdom, not dominated by the views of the world, but dominated by the views of Christ. That's why the church so often clashes with society. Society says, this is our value. And we'll say, but this is our value. Now it's interesting, things like humility, we take humility now as the norm. Back when the New Testament was written, and they talked about humility, people thought that humility was a sign of weakness, not a sign of strength. Yet you and I as Christians say, but humility is what we should be. We should be humble. That is a sign of strength. There's an exact turnaround from how society saw things. If we think of things like marriage, we see the sacredness of a husband and wife and children. That unit is sacred. That is a modern Christian view. Lots of cultures, lots of societies throughout the whole of history have regularly belittled and devalued the role of the family. And where is the kingdom of God seen in the third space? It's seen in the heart of believers. It's seen in the church meeting. It is seen the day that Jesus comes back to rule the earth. And then His kingdom will be proclaimed fully. So there we'll have a new heaven and a new earth. Now the gospel shows that the kingdom of God is both present and in the future. It is now but to be fulfilled. We're nearly there but not quite. You can hear the future dimension when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come or your kingdom come. We are praying daily in the Lord's Prayer for Jesus to bring his kingdom about. And we should pray that every day. Now bring the kingdom, Lord. Is not here the way we want it to be. Bring your kingdom, bring your rule, fully in the lives of believers first, and then ultimately in the world. Therefore Jesus can say the kingdom is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It would be easy for Jesus followers to think that they could make him an earthly king. And at different times you go through the Gospels, you see they did try and make him into an earthly king. They wanted him to make his kingdom happen in an earthly way. And Jesus is saying, No, my kingdom is far bigger, far more significant than the physical realm around you. Jesus knew that his death upon the cross would open the door to heaven and his kingdom would reign. This is why the kingdom of God in the Gospels is fulfilled in the rest of the New Testament, who don't use the term kingdom, but talk about Jesus is Lord. So Jesus being our Lord and the kingdom and the gospel are all intertwined terms. Now, as we come today to this uh, leprosy and the healing of a leper, it's interesting the New Testament has three words it uses to describe miracles. The first is it says it's a power, which means mighty deed that God is doing. Secondly, it is a sign which refers to a miracle that has figurative represents something else such as this healing represents the work of the kingdom of God. It's a symbolism. The third word they use is wonder. So you have power, signs, and wonder. And wonder indicates that something extraordinary is about to happen. Now sometimes Jesus calls on his Father in performing miracles. Other times he'll do his miracles in his own authority. Once more, it just gives us the subtle implications of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity. So when we come to the Gospels, we find that there are 37 miracles that occur. Now, some of the uh, miracles will occur in more than one Gospel, so their stories are repeated, but there's 37 of them. Of the 37, 11 are creation miracles. Jesus walks on water. Jesus calms a storm. On four occasions, Jesus will take demons or drive demons out of people. And four times, he'll get people who are dead and bring them to life again. But the most significant area of his miracles is healings. There are 20 different times that he performs healings. Now sometimes it's described that healings are done in general to the community. Other times it's very specific and Jesus heals one person. So healings could be withered hands, could be blind who could see, disabled who could walk, the invalid, the paralytic, or death could once more hear. Now in Mark 1 we have this story. Now just before it says this, Immediately Jesus left the synagogue in the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So he's there with four disciples. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And so we have the uh, implications there's 12 apostles. One of the apostles at least had a wife and therefore a mother-in-law. And uh, so immediately Jesus uh, was told about her. He came and took her by the hand, lifted her up and the fever left her like that. And typical of any good mother or mother-in-law, what does she do? She starts serving her food. You know, oh, you poor boys, you look so hungry, I have to feed you. And so she does what is normal. So what's the response to Jesus curing the mother-in-law? Very crisp quickly, people start whispering around the village. So it says in verse 32, that evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew who He was. And so we see right at this very beginning, as Jesus starts His ministry, His ministry is very strong focused, saying, I want to preach the kingdom of God. I want to call people to repentance. But because of His love and compassion on those who are struggling, people just don't hear the message only. They say, oh, but I've got a sick relative. I've got to bring them straight away. So now let's turn to the leper. Why is this leper, and why is leprosy so significant? Now the term leprosy, it could be lepers or leprosy or leprous, it occurs 68 times in the Bible, 55 times in the Old Testament, 13 times in the New. So what is leprosy? Now it wasn't until 1873 that it was given a specific typo called Henson's disease. It was given that in 1873 when Gerard Henson described the leprous uh, basilius. It was only at this point did leprosy finally have a definition for what was happening. Now, for many separate uh, centuries, leprosy was considered a curse of God and was often associated with sin. The earliest record we've been able to find of leprosy is about 600 BC. So it's a disease that has been part of uh, most countries in the uh, area of uh, Bible lands for centuries. But what's the trouble with leprosy? It did not kill you. But it did last forever and your body would slowly, exhaustively waste away to nothing. You would linger there with your body deforming and your tissues degenerating. Many have thought that leprosy was a skin disease. In reality, it's actually a nerve disease would be a better classification. Now, the Bible uses the term leprosy But it covers not just leprosy as in what we use today, but any of those major skin diseases. So it covers a far broader uh, uh, spectrum that even includes things like mould and mildew. Now in the Old Testament, God said that when there were lepers among the people of Israel, they should be carefully quarantined and examined. We see that in Leviticus 13 and 14. So what did that mean? If you were a leper, you had to dress like people who were mourning for the dead. So the very clothes you wore were that of a funeral because people considered that you were the living dead. How devastating would it be if you caught leprosy? As you walked through the streets, you had to yell out as people came near you, unclean, unclean, unclean. And those words be on your lips every moment of the day. A rabbi from the time of Jesus boasted that he would throw rocks at lepers to keep them far away from him. And people at the time of Jesus spoke very harshly about people who had leprosy. And Jesus freely touched people with leprosy. Well, people traditionally with leprosy suffered banishment from their family and neighbours, Jesus broke that tradition. He treated lepers with compassion, touching and healing them many many years ago now probably over 30 years ago, I worked in a place called Focus Youth Center that was run by our church and uh, it was one of the guys came along to our church, had AIDS. He um, had blood transfusions and he caught it through that and every time he had cuts he would come to our youth center and I'd, I'd bandage him up. And uh, at that time people were petrified of lepro- of um, AIDS. People thought you might get it from the air. It may be uh, given by mosquitoes. A mosquito, you know, takes blood out of one person, gives it to the next person, and therefore you might be able to catch aid. So you can imagine the fear and the horror and the devastation at, at that time. He was so harsh that his wife left him, saying, I cannot live with you because I'm in fear of my own very life. And he'd arrive and we'd bandage him up. I had to too naive to know, even to know uh, the potential dangers. He didn't use gloves because we didn't, just didn't know. But it was one of the few places that he got accepted. How much more were these lepers accepted? What about leprosy today? Most new cases of leprosy occur in only 14 countries. Half of all lepers occur in India today. So uh, what about modern countries like uh, Australia and America? 200 cases per year of leprosy are reported in the United States. Here in Australia, between 2005 and 2009, the World Health Organization reported that there were 45 cases of leprosy here in Australia. Does anybody know where the closest leper colony was to us here in Sydney? You will know, Jen. It's now a chronic fatigue centre. Prince Henry Hospital. Go to Prince Henry, the chronic fatigue centre. It's away from everything else. Why? because that was a leprosarium. Of the 13 newest cases of leprosy in Australia, 12 were people who were born overseas. So really, we don't have much of a problem with leprosy. Um, it did uh, do damage to our Aboriginals, but it's nearly uh, unknown now. However, our neighbours, New Guinea has 388 cases in 2015, and Timor, the new country that has uh, been greatly impacted by the Presbyterian Church, has 111 cases of leprosy. Let's turn to the pages now, remembering this passage about a leper is about a man who was considered unclean, destitute, and uh, had no dealings with his family, had no dealings with friends. He would only make friends with other lepers. So there in Mark 1 verse 40, A leper came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling beside him, If you will, you can make me clean. You man, This man is just... Begging his heart out for Jesus to heal him. Now, Luke describes this whole man as being full of leprosy there in Luke chapter 5, verse 12. What does that mean? I mean, this man's leprosy was full blown, it was at the last advanced stages. The whole man's body and his life was rotting before your eyes. What does Jesus do there in verse 41? Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and he touched him and said, I will be clean. Now it was against the Bible and against Jewish ceremonial law to touch a leper. Yet Jesus did not break the law because as soon as he touched the man, he was no longer a leper, but he was clean. Verse 42, Immediately the leprosy left him. He became clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. See, that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. What does he want to show himself to the priests? Jesus told the leper to go to the priests so they could carry out the ceremonial uh, cleaning and say the leper is cleansed, but far deeper is to say, this incurable disease is cured. What was there for life is gone. What was filth and death the person in front of you now is full of life. So Jesus does this to honour the law of God. And as a testimony to the high priest and the priests that an incurable disease has been indeed cured. Now it's interesting, the elements used in the Levitical ceremony for the cleansing of leper, which was cedar wood, hyssop and scarlet, are the very same elements used in cleansing someone who's been defiled by a dead body. So you can see the harshness of about how stark and how badly lepers were treated. And why does the Bible focus on leper? It's to say the very worst thing our society has that we hate the most, Jesus can change that. Verse 45, And he went out and began to talk freely about them and to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out to desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Now, it's interesting, as we go to the New Testament, as we go to the Bible, physical healing was never the central point of Jesus' earthly mission. So what was this point? Luke 19 says, to seek and to save that which is lost, to provide salvation, redemption, and eternal life to sinners. His one message from the very first words of Mark to the end of Mark is that of the Gospel, a call to repentance and a call to respond. So as it says in Matthew 4, 17, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That will ultimately lead to people's eternal life and their rest for their weary souls. Why do we follow Jesus? Because Jesus said to us in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take your yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now as Jesus travelled around, he did encounter multitudes of sick, lame, lepers, blind and other physically suffering people. The Bible tells us that he healed every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And those physical healings were vivid displays of both Jesus' power and, more importantly, of Jesus' compassion for people. They were proof of his deity that he was God and a living demonstration of his divine authority over sickness. They established for Jesus an unlimited power to liberate anyone and everyone from bondage, the penalty and the consequences of sin. As such, the healing ministry of Jesus was illustrative of the gospel message that he preached, that the healing was a true expression of divine compassion. But it's also the definitive verification of his messianic credentials that he was the Christ. He is the Son of God. And that's one of the reasons why he did it. The question that now falls to us in the modern church is, will everybody who prays today be healed? Paul, when he wrote in the church in Philippi, says this in chapter 1. To you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. So somehow suffering is not one of the things that will necessarily go when we become believers. Now sadly a lot of the suffering as believers is because the world will persecute us. But when the gospel is announced there is both the physical healings are merely symbolising a far more vital and far more lasting message. And a message which is far more real and far more momentous. Yes, healing brings temporary relief, but Jesus' purpose was eternal relief. Yes, healings will bring you temporary satisfaction, but our true satisfaction is found on the day we start in heaven. This is just, I just want to finish with these words from 2 Corinthians 4. So do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self has been renewed day by day. For this life, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond our comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, the things that are unseen are eternal. There are healings today, and if someone was sick in our church, the first thing I do would be pray for that person to be healed. And many times that person may be healed by God. I've had the joy of seeing people with cancer who are healed. We had one <coughs> lovely lady who um, was about to go under the knife. And the doctor said, the day before surgery, I just want to do one final inspection before we operate on you the next day. And she comes in and he says, look, I'm sorry, the test didn't seem to work. Can we test you a second time? And she says, all right, fair enough then. it has got tested a second time. Says, look, I'm sure, you know, that it, I know the cancer's there, but the machine's not reading properly. We're going to test you a third time, but on a different machine. And he came back and, and said, look, I don't know what to do. This is really embarrassing. Tomorrow we're going to operate on cancer, but today it's not there. I don't know what to do. Do you mind if I operate anyway just to see what's not there? And she graciously allowed him to look, and he came back and said, no cancer there whatsoever. But it was there on the screen beforehand. It really frustrated the poor doctor. But she had been prayed for. She had been loved by her church and by God in His mercy at that moment in time brought about healing. I have no idea who God will heal and who we will not heal. I will pray for healing, living in God's hands. But we're also told that the things of this world, the things of the scene, are transient. What is more important is that which is eternal. Let's just bow heads in prayer. Father, help us fix our eyes on that which is eternal. May our hearts' desire be to serve you and your gospel, to pray for your kingdom to come. We pray this now and every day that we live. Amen.